0: Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control, with the new Scorpion all-season plus three, ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver.
1: And the male pattern of antisocial behavior is a lot more physically violent. The female pattern of antisocial behavior is reputation destruction, and it scales on the internet. Physical aggression doesn't. Right. It's limited, right. and I'm not saying it's not serious. It can obviously be mortally serious. Right. It's of course, serious. Yes. But it does characterize a a small minority of men. Female antisocial behavior, which is almost never discussed, there's a large research literature on it. Because people have wondered, you know, that if you look at boys and girls, for example, two-year-olds, I mentioned them, some two-year-olds are aggressive. And that's by nature, mostly. Okay, so they kick, hit, bite, and steal. In groups of two-year-olds. Now, they're not very harmful, because they're two. But if it doesn't If it isn't socialized, it turns into conduct disorder and that turns into antisocial and criminal behavior. That's what happens.
0: This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And this show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick, and I'm pretty intense. Today on the show is someone that I am so, so excited about. I have been listening to his talks and his information for so long. His name is Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's a professor of psychology, a clinical psychologist, and author of best selling books 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And now he has beyond order 12 more rules for life. So clearly we need a lot of rules for life because <laughs> there's a, life is really challenging. And that's a lot of what we talked about is just how hard it is, how complicated it is. And then we get into self-awareness, which I think is just a huge thing to become self-aware of something going on, facing it. I think we all want to get better, but it's a matter of how do we figure out where we need to get better? Where are our blind spots? He's a fascinating human. If you've never heard of him, uh, get ready. He's a straight down the barrel kind of guy. And I think you're going to like this. Wow. Hi, Jordan. How are you? Hi, Denica. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, eh? A. <laughs> uh, have got uh, some, I have relatives that live in Canada. So I'm familiar with the Canadian accent. I love the Canadians.
1: And people really do say A all the time.
0: Oh, yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a boot.
1: It's really true. Well, I can't hear that. <laughs> sounds like a bout to me, but <laughs> right, people exactly. say it isn't. So <laughs> thank you for the invitation.
0: Oh, thank you for doing it. This is um I don't think there's been an interview that I have been more excited about or prepared as much. And hmm. my preparation is not really Like hasn't been just all the like since I knew we were doing this, I have been paying attention to your work and listening to you and watching YouTube videos for years and years. And I just think that you're brilliant. I think that you are um, you have such an incredible scope. One of the things that's so amazing is how you are able to layer in so many different um sources whether it's um, religion or mythology or psychology and you just blend them also comprehensively when you answer a question and i just i just think it's it's brilliant how how are you able how are you able to take all of those sources and blend them together so smooth
1: well my mind works in it. A theoretical way, I would say. I was talking with two psychologists yesterday, Stephen Pinker and Jonathan Haidt. And Haidt seems to think like me. He he has a kind of a master theory in some sense, and then he just plugs things into it. Whereas Pinker remembers facts. He has an amazing memory. He's he's like a uh, he's like an encyclopedia. And I'm not like that. Like facts themselves don't really stick with me. I have a theory about things and I just plug new pieces of information into it all the time and it's one big story. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of know the story. I guess that's the right and that's how I think. And so if a topic elicits part of that theory which I've been writing about and lecturing about for, you know, 30 years, then I have something to say about it. I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's something like what jazz musicians do. They have all sorts of riffs and tricks that they have stored up, and then they can improvise with them as needs be. And that seems to be how I think and how I lecture. Well, what's I'm always that? trying to build this theory and to cover new territory with it, and to make it more comprehensive.
0: Well, what's the what's that
1: theory? Well, I suppose in essence, it's it's this it's a theory about the story that we look at the world through. Well, first of all, the theory is that we do look at the world through a story. And, you know, people are very, very attracted to stories, right? Children Mm -hmm. will beg for a story. Mm -hmm. So there's something very particular about stories that compel us. And I mean, it's odd if you think about it. We'll pay to go watch a story. Doesn't matter if it hurts our feelings, doesn't matter if it makes us (laughs) anxious or upsets us, any of those things, it doesn't matter we're still so enthralled by it that we'll go expose ourselves to it. So stories must be extremely useful to us unless you just write that off as mere entertainment, which I don't think is very smart. And a story is about going from where you are to somewhere better usually, and then about the catastrophes that might befall you along the way, the unexpected occurrences and how those might resolve and how that might change you, the way you look at the world, the way you interact with other people, either for the better or the worse, better if it's a comedy and worse if it's a tragedy. And so I've been trying to unpack what a story is. A simple story is just, a child might tell it. Uh, I went to kindergarten today. You know, uh, more complicated story is, I went to kindergarten today, but on the way a mean dog barked at me and I got real upset and I thought maybe I'd go home but I decided to continue. Then hmm. you pat the child on the head and say, Well, that was a good decision, right? That you stuck with your course despite the fact that you got waylaid by something frightening. And so the first story is a, I called it a normal story in my first book, and the second story, a revolutionary story. And so Exodus in the Old Testament is a revolutionary story, right? Because the Israelites leave, the Jews leave. The tyranny, Egypt, and escape into freedom. But then everything falls apart into chaos. And then, at least in principle, they find their way again and move forward. It's a very powerful story.
0: How can we know, because so many of these stories, whether they're from you know ancient Egypt or... Uh, I went to Egypt earlier this year and hearing the stories about uh, Osiris and ISIS and... Horus and all of these different stories, but that or religious even from the time that Jesus was around when they, you know, put, you know, wrote these stories down many, many decades later. How, how do we know if the story is real? Because memory is poor.
1: Well, I think that's a very, very complicated problem, obviously. I mean, some forms of truth are factual. Scientific truths are factual, other sorts of truths, you act out mm. and you see if they work. And so they're true in the sense that an arrow is true when it flies or someone's heart is true, right? There's lots of variations mm. of the idea of truth. And so Christian story posits a ideal at its center, and that's the story of Christ and, and everything about him. And the truth of that is to be discovered in action, as far as I can tell, and acting it out. It's a target for emulation and imitation. Mm. It's not so much a description of, mm. of objective reality, although it might also be mm. that. But mm. and so to believe it is to act it out, a kind of ethic.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: part of what Christianity is is a discussion about what constitutes the ideal that we should all act out and that unites us around that ideal and it also structures our expectations because we're disappointed in ourselves and in other people whenever we don't manifest that ideal, right? Mm-hmm. Your conscience bothers you, you feel guilty, you feel ashamed because you're not putting forward your ideal self and that ideal. You know, people have been trying to sort out what that ideal is for a very long time. So certainly the Egyptians you talked about, part of their ideal was Isis, Horus, Osiris. They all represented different elements of existence. Osiris was the god of the state, essentially. He was willfully blind and was defeated by his evil brother, Seth. That happens to states all the time, that malevolent forces take them over when they're willfully blind. And Horus, Horus is the Egyptian eye, and everyone knows that symbol still, which is quite amazing given that it's thousands of years old, and Horus is the god who pays attention. So the Egyptians worshipped attention as the force that revitalized the old state, and it's brilliant. It's different than thought, Hmm. attention, right? Attention is reception. It's being willing to see what's in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so the Egyptians figured out, took them a long, long time, that there was something divine about the capacity to pay attention. Something that would redeem the blind state. Mm. So, you know, all of us are inheritors of a cultural tradition. It's functional. In the U.S., that's embodied, I suppose, in the Constitution. But the Constitution is dead, except insofar as it's... Embodied in living people who are paying attention Right so the Egyptian pharaoh was a combination of Osiris and Horus was a brilliant idea hey So that meant that he was the tradition that had founded the state Plus the capacity to pay attention Hmm. And renew the state yeah 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 And they figured out that that was the central idea The central element of appropriate sovereignty Wow Right? Because you might say, well, would it be brute force? Would it be power? There's lots of accusations about that today, that cultural institutions are basically predicated on power. That's wrong. It's it's a it's a it's a terrible way to think. It's mm-hmm. I mean, they, they are predicated on power when they become corrupt. But you know, everyone you know who's corrupt uses power. No one that no one that is behaving according to the ideal uses force to get their way and it's not very efficient anyways makes you unpopular
0: yeah.
1: it makes you a target it's unstable socially it's unsophisticated doesn't even work well for children doesn't work well for animals for that matter often
0: mm. so it might not maybe it's not even that this whether the story is right or not it's a m- maybe more of a guideline it's more it's more archetypal kind of uh, stories that help guide us. And maybe it doesn't even matter if they're real. What matters well, is that we're using them to be better, to have good ideals, to a yeah, well, re- be better well, Reel,
1: pers- Real is a tricky business in some sense, you know, because abstract things can be more real than concrete things. Like numbers, for example, are very abstract but they're real enough so that if you can manipulate them, you can change the world. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, we, if you read deep literature, uh, deep literature is in some sense, a distillation of character, right? I mean, no one would want to read just about your day if you described every detail. Right. You sort of pull out what's interesting and relevant and, and, and essential. And so these stories are in some sense essential. And so they're true in that they're abstractions. That's how I look at it. Now, that leaves open the relationship between them and what we would normally consider historical truth. And there's tremendous amount of debate about that. I certainly don't have the answer to that.
0: <clears throat>
1: but, you know, there's an idea, for example, common idea that Christ is the king of kings. Well, yeah. so you imagine that you abstract out of people what would make someone noble, right? So you look at noble features across a bunch of, uh, uh, across a assortment of different people, and you think, well, there, I could make a noble character out of that. And then you take all those noble characters, and you take the most noble element of them, and you say, that's a king. Then you take a group of kings, and you say, what's most kingly? You abstract mm. out that, hmm. right? So that's, that's part of the idea. Now, people like Carl Jung and C.S. Lewis believed that they believed that Christ acted out that archetype, that King of Kings. And so there was a union between the historical reality and the abstraction. And so, you know, we don't know what would happen if an ideal person came into existence. Perhaps nothing. I mean, we don't know, do we? But...
0: Is that maybe not even the point? I've I've really thought about this. Is that not the point, maybe even of being here in this human existence? Do Do we need the polarity? Do we need the sides? Do we need the contrast? Like if there was an ideal person, does that even work here?
1: That's a good question. I mean, we do seem disappointed when people don't live up to the ideal that we expect. But by the same token, we tend to love people, even sometimes for their faults, certainly despite them. Yeah. So, ideal guides us along and judges us all the time. Mm. You know, you you work towards a better self, at least to some degree. You have some conceptualization of that. You're excited when that works out and disappointed when it doesn't. Mm. Certainly, with people you love, although you do accept them in some sense the way they are, you're disappointed. When they aren't all they could be, as far as you're concerned. That's mm-hmm. particularly true, probably, of family members. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's particularly true of parents in relationship to their children. Mm. Mm. You know, and that's a funny question. You know, when you love somebody, do you love the ideal they could be, or do you love them, or both, perhaps? Because you want to encourage them. You want to have have them grow towards something that's better.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we're so attracted to um vulnerability and vulnerability implies perhaps a shortcoming right like something that's just not not ideal and that's a connection vulnerability is a point of connection so what yeah. if we didn't have any of that
1: yeah well i guess in some sense that's a justification for vulnerability isn't it
0: <laughs> well how would we have connection then where does where does connection come from
1: well, that's a good question. We wouldn't be the creatures we are without our vulnerabilities. Mm. That's for sure. You really see that in children, yeah. you know, and and the fact that they're vulnerable doesn't make you less care for them less far. Yeah. F- Quite the contrary.
0: Yeah. But it's, I think it's in adults too. I mean, whether it's something that I've shared, something that you shared about your struggles, like I think it's in the vulnerability that we create relatability and, you know, the connection point.
1: Yeah, it's it's certainly that in part. I mean, we also look to each other for, for inspiration, but I, often that comes as a consequence of overcoming vulnerabilities.
0: Mm. One of the things that I think I have had the most struggle with, and this comes to a lot of what you talk about, about, you know, being better and choosing, you know, addressing things that are difficult and, It comes in the form of self-awareness. I found self-awareness to be incredibly hard. It's not that I don't want to get better. It's that sometimes I don't know how to get better. I can't see myself. So I have to use people and experiences and patterns to discover those things. So how can can one create more self-awareness? I think
1: you got it exactly right there. I think you got it right. A lot of that's generated as a consequence of interacting with other people. right? I mean, you know, you're, you're limited by your blind spots and your ignorance. And so you can try to overcome that, but sometimes you don't even know what it is. And in my latest book, in Beyond Order, I think it's, uh, is it the first chapter? Yes, it's the first chapter, talk about the necessity for social interactions, mm-hmm. t- for sanity, right? Because in some ways you think of yourself as maintaining good mental health if you're well organized internally if your psyche is in proper order but it's a lot easier to act in a way that other people find acceptable and then to take your cues from them and that helps keep you organized and together so you know when your jokes are funny and you know when you're not contributing enough to a conversation or maybe you're contributing too much or you're not pulling your weight or other people clue you into that sort of thing all the time. So mm. part of what keeps people sane is healthy social dynamic and the ability to pay attention to cues. And that might be particularly true for children. I was reading a book the other day. Uh, I fortunately, don't remember the name of it. I didn't read much of it, but um, it was written by an anthropologist who spent some time in more tribal societies watching how they raise children. Well in some sense they didn't. The children went off and played.
0: <laughs>
1: and so they socialized each other. And that's a good example of how sanity emerges from social interactions.
0: Is that is are you, you know. implying that that's better that that dynamic is better? I know that your thoughts on raising children include like you know as few rules as possible as little discipline as possible which seems now, I like I wouldn't say as little discipline but Rules, okay. you know, well, there's
1: a good rule for rules, which is don't multiply rules beyond necessity because bad rules drive out respect for good rules. And the cost of a rule is enforcement. So every time you add a rule, well, you add the necessity of enforcement. So there are minimal, you know, you want a minimal set of necessary rules Mm. and then you need to enforce them. But generally, children socialize each other there's there's very good evidence for that apart from this book, which, as I said, I had just begun to read. Um, children who are aggressive at two, mm-hmm. so there's a subset of children who are quite aggressive at two. They are aggressive by nature, by all appearances. Um, most of them are socialized by the age of four. And if they're socialized by then, they develop peer relationships that are strong and then That carries them along. their peer relationships. So in some sense, the job of a parent is to socialize children well enough so that they can have friends.
0: How do you do that?
1: Well, one of the rules I laid out in the first book I wrote was don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. And that's, I suppose, part of self-awareness. I mean, you you might say, well, I'd never dislike my child. It's like, yeah, right. (laughs) Come on come on. Now, that doesn't mean you don't love them. Although, you know, now and then you might feel that you don't love them too. But certainly, (laughs) you're going to dislike them momentarily for things that they're doing or not doing. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, if you don't like them, what makes you think someone else will? And then you might say, well, that's just me. You know, that's just you. You're just one person. Well, you're the closest thing to a representative of the social community that they have so they're stuck with you and then I would also say well it'd probably be better if there were two of you you know father and a mother because then you can try to make sure that both of you add up to one sane person so the child can interact with that one sane person but you know it's definitely the case that uh, I mean I've seen children who don't have anyone to play with because they don't know how to play mm. they're not socialized it's horrible and they fall farther and farther behind all the time because
0: yeah. mm-hmm. do you think that falls on is that is that a parent thing is that maybe being in a household of you know not having a mom and a dad there? Is-
1: children who are fatherless do worse there's no doubt about that and no one likes to say that but the the research evidence is crystal clear and it's hardly surprising i don't know why anyone would su- find that surprising first of all it's too much work to raise children by yourself. Yeah. Especially if you have to work. So in that case you're not going to raise them by yourself anyways you're going to have other people help you but you know it's likely the case that the nuclear family is the minimum necessary social arrangement for raising children and it's it's possibly not sufficient. You know we also don't know what's happened to children because they don't have very many siblings anymore. And siblings really in some sense socialize they sure, certainly help take the narcissism out of you mm. right because siblings they don't let each other get away with being sure. being narcissistic essentially they're they're very very yeah. uh unhappy about special attention mm-hmm. so we don't know how many p- children uh, children have to have around in order to be socialized properly but mm-hmm. i suspect we're erring on the side of not enough now and probably not enough for parents Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. does it it seems but is it the case that narcissism is becoming more and more and more common i really
1: don't know it's very very difficult to answer questions like that because we just don't have reliable measures across generations you know it isn't obvious to me that young people today are more narcissistic than young people were in the 60s so you know it wasn't obvious to me when i was teaching university that the students were more narcissistic than they were when I started teaching, mm-hmm. but but like I said, fundamentally, it's 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 hard to get an accurate measure of something like narcissism, and then to track mm-hmm. it over decades, you don't even know if the measure itself shifts. Okay. I do believe that they're that people are more lonesome than they were; they're more socially isolated. But you know, that's also very difficult to de- determine. Yeah, I'm loath to make intergenerational comparisons, you know, because. Sure. Every generation thinks that this current young generation is worse than any generation that's ever existed. And it's, it's like just- when you
0: gr- when you grow up and you listen to your you know your parents listen to your music and they're like this stuff's awful and then that continues on every generation like that stuff's awful that the kid are listen kids are listening to. It's like no matter what there's always this idea that oh it's the worst than ever. And so maybe that leads to that question which is what is better and what is worse than ever right now in our culture?
1: I guess it depends to some degree on your scale. So, globally, in terms of economic and uh, absolute economic security, it's better than it's ever been by a huge margin for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a much smaller proportion of people who are without food and water and sanitary facilities, technology and education and immunization and healthcare and basic living standard. And, it's, it's, and that's a huge amount of that's developed in the last 30 years. And almost all of it has developed in the last 150, despite the fact that the population has exploded to a tremendous degree. And so from the perspective of absolute privation, things are better than they ever have been. In the West, well, that's hard to say too, isn't it? I mean, there's all sorts of opportunities that there weren't. The technological explosion has produced a tremendous increment in wealth in some ways. I mean, you have more computational power in your phone than NASA used to send people to the moon and back and it's basically free. Now, it's not free, but fundamentally, the cost has plummeted to such a degree that, so, and we have this tremendous communications technology. Um, There's a kind of instability, I think, that wasn't there 20 years ago. And I think it's a consequence of rapid technological change. Uh, It seems to me, and that's, Possibly, because I'm old. I, I have a hard time keeping up now. And I was really just on the edge of the generation that became familiar with computers. Many people my age never became familiar with computers. Not really. I did, but I spent a lot of time, and I needed to because of my job, and I spent a lot of time making myself technologically uh, at, uh, able, let's say but my health is impaired now so that's a problem but I find it difficult to keep up there's so many things to keep up with and changes take place so fast just as you adapt to one thing another thing comes along and it's like that with everything your computer changes your refrigerator changes your car changes right in front of your eyes it's updating all the time and so your knowledge is continually outdated so you you know you work very hard to develop expertise with something and all of a sudden, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. I found that very frustrating with Microsoft Word. You know, I really knew the programs and then they changed the menu. It's like, well, I spent like 10 years practicing how to use that, I really knew it. It's like, well, now the menu's changed and so all that knowledge is gone. And, so, and we have no idea what this intense focus on social media is doing to everyone, but particularly to young people. I mean, can you imagine that nothing you ever did with, as a teenager could be forgotten?
0: I look can you at imagine it, that?
1: God, awesome. I mean, I
0: also look at it from the from the perspective of hiding you know, I behind the phone. And I live in a world where people have said horrible things about me on the internet and on social media. Yeah, and, that's fun, eh? Yeah, it's so fun. I, I know mm. you have a lot of experience with that. But I don't know mm. them. So I can write that off to... They don't even know me. Right. But now this happens in school and a kid can read this and and they're, they're in class with that person or they they have a locker near them. And they're like, is that true then? And I think that that is such a dangerous and horrible thing for a kid to have to deal with. I very much empathize with kids today and social media and just, you know, we haven't even talked about pure body image and just pure looks. I mean, you, you don't know what anybody looks like anymore through social media and filters anymore either, but but definitely from at least like a acceptance standpoint when people say things.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things I've been concerned about is that, so there's a, there's a female pattern of antisocial behavior and there's a male pattern of antisocial behavior. And the male pattern of antisocial behavior is a lot more physically violent. The female pattern of antisocial behavior is reputation destruction.
0: Ooh.
1: Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And it scales on the internet. See, physical aggression doesn't, right? Because right. What can you do? Right. It, it's limited. Right. And I, I'm not saying it's not serious. It can obviously be mortally serious, right? It's of course, serious. Yes. But it does characterize a a small minority of men, especially consistently. Wow. Um, But female antisocial behavior, which is almost never discussed, there's a large research literature on it. Because people have wondered, you know, that if you look at boys and girls, for example, two-year-olds, I mentioned them, some two-year-olds are aggressive. And that's by nature, mostly. Okay, so they kick, hit, bite, and steal in groups of two-year-olds. Now, they're not very harmful because they're two, (laughs) but if it doesn't, if it isn't socialized, it turns into conduct disorder and that turns into antisocial and criminal behavior. That's what happens. So most people who are criminal by the time they're 18 were aggressive when they were two and weren't socialized. Okay, so now most of those aggressive two-year-olds are boys. Hmm. If you define aggression by hitting, kicking, stealing and biting. But the reputation destruction that starts early with girls, and that's their form of antisocial behavior. And, you know, we don't know what political manifestation female antisocial behavior will produce because the complete immersement of men and women in the political realm is new. But for to think that it'll be nothing, well, you have to be a complete bloody fool to think that because obviously the dark side of men has a dark political edge. Why wouldn't the dark side of women have a dark political edge? Mm. So, and no, you know, there's no discussion about that at all to speak of. But I can't help seeing it. I see it. I think that's the reputation destruction mm. that's characteristic of social media. Seems to be. I mean, I saw it when girls went after my daughter in particular when she was a teenager, bullying on, on social media. They use reputation destruction, and it can be unbelievably vicious. Well, you said you've been attacked plenty online.
0: Wow. Huh. So do you, so the social network being as it is, I mean, well, we look at, you know, Chrissy Teigen or people like that, that. I mean, women have definitely been on the fire for things that have happened on social, social media platforms. Hmm. I wonder if it's more men than women then.
1: Well, that's a good question. That would be a good place to start the research. Like, I don't know who now it's also possible that you know there's a large proportion of men who use reputation destruction too online Mm. so i I wouldn't say that this is something limited to women by any stretch of the imagination but Mm -hmm. i do know that those two patterns of antisocial behavior exist so and that one doesn't scale so that is a relevant issue so Mm. you were talking about asked about body image or commented on body image too you know we could talk about that a little bit if you'd like
0: yeah absolutely You know, a I lot
1: of people think that that's a consequence of social pressure body image trouble and i don't think there's any evidence for that by the way really yeah well a lot of so women are more likely to have body image problems than men right okay so that's the first thing so and that's likely because body morphology is more important in mating choice for women than it is for men men tend to prefer women who show signs of fertility that's Mm -hmm. associated with youth and symmetry Mm -hmm. so symmetry is very very important as as a marker of beauty so we Mm -hmm. tend to see symmetrical faces as beautiful waist Mm -hmm. to hip ratio 0.68 that seems to be relatively standard culturally regardless of body size Mm -hmm. and that's also that's associated with cardiovascular health and with fertility Mm -hmm. and so there's an ideal idealized, ideal, female morphology, and any deviation from that causes upset. And women are more prone to negative emotion than men. Not anger, by the way, that's that's a tougher one. Mm -hmm. But anxiety and pain-related emotions, women are more sensitive to those than men. Maybe because they're smaller and life is more dangerous to them and they have to be more threat sensitive. Maybe because they take care of infants and so you know one question i've never discussed this i don't think online women become more sensitive to negative emotion than men when they hit puberty not before and it never goes away after Mm -hmm.
0: that
1: right Mm. so it's a permanent transformation
0: even after menopause just like yeah
1: yeah well the Men and women get more stable emotionally as they get older, but the difference between men and women doesn't seem to attenuate. Hmm. And so, I've now women became sex become sexually vulnerable at puberty. So that might be one reason why they would be more sensitive to danger, right? Hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, there's plenty of places in the world where you wouldn't walk alone. Sure. Right. There's there's plenty of places where walking alone would make you a valid target, even. Right. Right, right. And I would say that's probably more the norm for human societies than the exception. You know, we assume that our relatively safe environments are normal. They're not. They took a lot of work to get safe, like so much work that it's almost incomprehensible. There's just so many things we take for granted that make up that safety, Mm -hmm. that that are invisible because because it's mostly there. Mm -hmm. But... I also wonder, possibly, if women's nervous systems are optimized for the woman-child dyad and not for the woman. So imagine that, well, if you have a baby, you're definitely more vulnerable. Right. Right. And so perhaps your nervous system should reflect that because you're the one making the decisions. Hmm. And, you know, because women are more prone to anxiety disorders and depression than men. That, that seems true cross-culture and it goes along with that sensitivity to negative emotion you think what's the advantage to that because it causes a lot of suffering
0: oh I've it's seen no it.
1: yeah it's terrible terrible
0: it's terrible, I, it's terrible. I, would, I would love to talk more about anxiety when we get through this topic but it's a it's it's crippling for people
1: yes absolutely well it's also a good promote, predictor of marital instability because higher levels of negative emotion predict well unhappiness so obviously marital stability and or marital, marital instability but it's certainly possible that women's nervous systems, adult women's, are are optimized for the for the child for the infant mother diet. Mm-hmm. I mean, why would we expect it to be other yeah. than that? You know, because yeah. a baby is so unbelievably dependent. Sure, sure. So, so and and well, so there's all sorts of adaptations that have to take place to that. You ha- you have to be more cautious once you have an infant, especially one under one years old, but even you know under three, under five for that matter.
0: So, so then it comes into saying what what is the point and so if anxiety comes in if that is a natural um a biological shift once you hit puberty yeah for precaution for self as well as child yeah then let's then we we know all the negative i mean the negative side effects seem very loud but what are the positives what are the positives of anxiety
1: well you're more likely to stay away from danger Right, you're more sensitive to danger, more sensitive to threat. You're more sensitive perhaps to the danger of predatory men. You know, and that's not trivial. It if if you have a step parent, you're one hundred times more likely to be abused. One hundred times? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's hard to raise kids. They're right. biologically related to you. You know, that's an additional bond, especially right. if you're there right from the beginning. Right, And it's very tricky to negotiate a child-adult relationship, especially if you're an interloper and maybe the kid doesn't like you or vice versa. And there's plenty of rivalry for attention. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of rivalry for attention within families. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so while the upside to anxiety is that it it protects you from danger. That's its purpose.
0: To me, it feels like, though, that there are these patterns and and maybe maybe it happens when they're very young that they can feel the parent's anxiety. Um, in a, well, you're saying that it doesn't get triggered until puberty, but it feels like something that loops for people.
1: Oh, look, it can go out of control constantly. It, it definitely. That's a very good observation. A lot of, a lot of the, the, the conditions we d- think about as mental illnesses are looping phenomena. So, for example, imagine you get depressed. So, Well, then you start to isolate yourself. So then you don't have any social contact. So then you get more depressed. Well, then you isolate yourself more, right? Mm -hmm. And anxiety is like that too. Imagine you start to get afraid of going outside. So you don't go outside. Well, then you get more afraid of going outside. You get more anxious. and Lots of things loop like that and get Mm -hmm. out of control. Mm -hmm. Or you drink alcohol and then you find out that If you have a drink when you're hungover, it fixes it. Well, then the then the cause the cause becomes the cure. That's not good. That's a positive feedback loop too. And lots of things, lots of things that go out of control are positive feedback loops like that.
0: What's actually happening in the body that creates the looping?
1: Well, with anxiety, um, breath irregularity can do it. So, because it changes the chemical compound sure and, and exacerbate it because it changes the chemical composition of your blood so one of the things that therapists do to deal with panic attacks in particular is to have people breathe regularly and you can do that for relaxation exercise too hmm. so
0: is this where meditation comes in where they say it's so beneficial
1: possibly yeah yeah it takes a lot of practice so it and does so people are, are less prone to do that but yeah
0: I also find that with yoga even. I don't know if you've ever done yoga mm. before, but it, it almost to me feels like it feels so good because you breathe so slow and long and controlled. And there there aren't that many physical activities that you do where there's like such a focus on breath, um, but breath being a really powerful tool for a lot of things.
1: Yeah, well, it's pretty fundamental. You do it what many, many times a minute. Right? It's important Definitely. to get it right.
0: Another thing that you talk about a lot as we're talking about these loops and patterns is uh, how you can actually become aware of the things that hold you back or as you've talked about so many times, the monster inside, like how... Do you actually become aware of that? Because again, I think self-awareness is half the battle really, maybe even more in my mind, because I think a lot of people by nature, I think they want to be better. I think they just don't always know how or have the examples or have the awareness. So what do you do? What can you do to, to sort of cultivate that awareness and cultivate that ability to be able to see the things that are going on in your life that are holding you back? and fall into a loop or a pattern?
1: Well, I have a practical answer for that. If, if you want to get better, um, I developed a writing set of writing exercises with my colleagues,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So there, well, we have two exercises. One's a personality test. And so for self-awareness, that can be really useful. It's In fact, if you take it with your partner, you get a couple's report. Huh. So it'll tell you 10... F- 10 aspects of your personality clumped into five factors. Extroversion, so how social you are and how positive, how bubbly, how enthusiastic, how assertive, how talkative. That's all extroversion. Neuroticism, that's negative emotion. Almost all of them. Anger, irritability, fear, guilt, shame, despair, disgust. Um, Disgust is a little unique, but all the negative emotions clump together and people differ in their susceptibility to that. Mm. Um, Agreeableness. Women are more agreeable than men by quite a substantial margin. It's associated with compassion and politeness. And so disagreeable people, they're more blunt. They'll tell you they're less conflict avoidant. Yes, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, it'd be interesting to take the personality test and see where you fall. Because my suspicions are that for a woman, you're quite disagreeable. And that's that's not a... uh, insult by the way agreeableness is quite a weird dimension because there are marked positive and negative attributes all along the entire dimension. Mm-hmm. So disagreeable people if they're really disagreeable they can be callous and unkind and cruel and antisocial um, mm. but very very agreeable people can be dependent and yeah. uh, and and over nurturing and devouring you know on the on the all never let you go end of the spectrum right? So that's agreeableness, conscientiousness, that's orderliness and industriousness. It's the best predictor of lifetime success, apart from general cognitive ability, which is IQ essentially, and openness, which is creativity. Mm. And it's associated with, um, well, interest in diverse activities and novelty, aesthetic experiences, Mm. and interest in ideas, philosophical ideas. And so um, you do a podcast, you're probably pretty high in openness.
0: Yeah, I am very high in openness. Is this the future, what's it called? This is called Understand Myself.
1: And if you do it, you get a report for you. And if your partner does it, you get a report for them and both of you. And so the reason we did that, that's a relatively new innovation, by the way. Um, The reason we did that is because it's not easy for people to understand each other and they often feel that their partner is being arbitrary. So for example, my parents, my mother is very extroverted and my father is quite introverted, especially he's low in enthusiasm. And so my mom would just as soon be out with people having fun all the time, but that exhausts my dad. And introverts get exhausted by social interactions. I think they're more, more, their niche is one-on-one and maybe being in nature. Whereas extroverts, they wanna be in society and they tell jokes and they smile and they blink more and there's all sorts of things that go along with it but if you're extroverted and your partner's introverted you've got a problem because you're always going to be want to be out and about and that energizes you and when you're not with people that is you're going to be unhappy or you're going to be not happy right. not unhappy because that's neuroticism but you're not going to be happy the positive emotion is going to go away and so how do you bridge that gap that's how you are it's not some arbitrary decision, it's built into you. And so if you really diverge in extroversion, well, that's a problem. If you're both really high in negative emotion, you're gonna be setting yourself off, you're, the two of you off all the time, right? So, and, and as I said, that higher levels of neuroticism are associated with marital unhappiness. So if you're both high in neuroticism, that might be the one dimension where you don't wanna be like your partner If you're, if it's high, right? For someone who's high in neuroticism, they might really like to have a stable, uh, a stable partner who's who's less uh-huh. threat sensitive. So, mm-hmm. and then agreeableness. Well, agreeable people they're easy to get along with; they're conflict avoidant, but they can be pushovers. And so, if your partner's disagreeable and you're agreeable, it's going to be hard for you to stand your ground because you're going to get run over.
0: So awareness comes through actually wanting it.
1: Well there's, well, there's that, but also, also understanding, to some degree, understanding what the differences are. Like, I thought my daughter was more disagreeable than she is when she took my test. She took the test, and it showed that she was higher negative emotion than I thought. And so what I saw as combative was reactive anxiety. And that was really helpful to me, because I thought it was combative. It wasn't. So, and I thought I'd be able to tell that, but I couldn't. So people high in negative emotion can be irritable. And so that looks like combativeness, but it's defensive. Disagreeable people can be more predatory. They're out to get what they want. They want to win, you know, and that's different.
0: Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.